You're listening to the College Info Geek Podcast, where it's all about learning more, paying off your student debt, landing your dream job, and being awesome at college. Now, here's your host, Thomas Frank. Hey everybody, I'm Thomas Frank, and welcome back to the College Info Geek Podcast. This is episode 38, and on today's episode, I'm talking to my friend Stephanie Halligan, who runs Empowered Dollar. And Stephanie's really cool because she is a personal finance writer, but also a cartoonist. And she's the only person on the internet that I know of who draws cartoons and comics about personal finance. Stephanie's also awesome because she paid off over $25,000 of student debt. Oh, excuse me, uh, $35,000 in student debt and negotiated over $13,000 in raises over a couple jobs. So in this episode, she's going to talk about how she paid off her debt so fast and the techniques and tactics she used to negotiate those salary increases, even when she was an entry-level employee at these companies. So if you're interested in earning more money when you graduate and start getting a job, then this episode is for you. And we're going to get into that interview really quickly. But first, as always, just a reminder that if you have questions about college, uh, if you're wondering how to study better and be more efficient and product uh, productive or uh, get a job or an internship or master your money and pay off your debt, then send your questions over to thomas at collegeinfogeek.com. Once a month, my roommate, my girlfriend, and I get together, we play a video game, and we answer five reader questions on our little reader Q&A uh, episode of the podcast. So if you want to have a question answered on the show, then send those questions over. And I'm also doing a weekly video, which you may have seen. So if you go over to collegeinfogeek.com slash videos, then you're going to see uh, new videos over on YouTube and you can subscribe to that channel. I'm also considering questions that people sent in for, or that people send in, not sent, that's a past tense word, uh, that people send in for new videos. So if you want to see new videos and new podcast episodes based off of your questions, then get those questions over to me. And as always, you can subscribe to this show if you want to get new episodes the moment they come out, 6 a.m. Monday morning on whatever device you listen to. Subscribe in iTunes or Pocket Casts is the app that I listen to. Whatever app you listen in, you can subscribe and get that content delivered. And uh, you can find the subscribe link and... Also, quotes and links to things we mentioned in the episode and a small summary and all sorts of cool stuff over at the show notes, which are located at sigpodcast.com, cigpodcast.com. And if you go there, um, once this episode's up, you're going to see something new on the podcast page. There's a brand new podcast player on the podcast page. So you no longer have to actually click into the show notes to listen to an episode, which is awesome. And I got to give a big shout out and thank you to my friend Pat Flynn over at smartpassiveincome.com because he is the one of the creators of this podcast player and it works beautifully. It's responsive. It looks good on your phone. looks good on big screens. Uh, It's amazing. So check it out. I'm really proud of how it looks and I will be tweaking the design over the next coming weeks. But for now, it does work, and you can listen to the episodes there if you prefer to listen in a web browser. But uh, that's all I have to say for the intro, so let's get into this interview with Stephanie and learn how she negotiated her salary increases and all sorts of other cool stuff. All right, welcome to the show, Stephanie. Hi, thanks for having me. No problem. So I think there are four things that students are going to get pretty excited about. One, you paid off $34,000 in debt. That's right. In under four years, which is pretty freaking awesome most people take a lot longer than that and you also you're a you're a financial consultant and financial blogger but also you have a comic strip which is totally unheard of and awesome and that's the reason why i thought your blog was so cool and wanted to follow you when i discovered you probably three months ago 
Yeah, thanks. I was able to combine two really random things in my life <laughs> in a really interesting way. So I'm, I'm glad you enjoy it. Yeah, and it's, it's so cool when you can combine something creative with something that's, um, I guess, worthy of starting a business over. Yeah, absolutely. So what I want to know, since, uh, since $34,000 is a little bit above the average student loan debt, uh, I'd like to just get your story about how uh, your college experience went and why you had to graduate with debt. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, um, unfortunately, I think it's pretty common to graduate and, and see the balance and be a little, uh, shocked by the amount. And that's definitely was the case for me. Um, I, uh, grew up on the West coast and really wanted to just get, uh, away to the different side of the country, um, and try a new place. Uh, and so I ended up applying to a, you know, pretty expensive private school way out in Boston. Um, and I was also the first person in my family to go to college. And I think in retrospect, I realized that the way I approached applying for college, finding scholarships, accepting a financial aid package, and then ultimately taking out, you know, over $30,000 in student loans to pay for it, I, I was pretty unaware of what the process should have looked like, how to avoid the loans in the first place, and um, and really just understanding what my financial aid package was made up because I, I came from a family that couldn't afford to pay for college with, with savings or anything, so I knew I had to have a school that was willing to cover you know, all the costs and we didn't, we didn't have to pay out of pocket. So I was basically looking for a package that, that, you know, I didn't have to write a check for that moment. And, um, and, you know, when you look at it later, you realize that, uh, you know, $6,000, $7,000 a year uh, of that package was student loans. And so (laughs) on the other side of it, um, I, you know, it felt like I had my, I felt like I had my bases covered and I, I did in a sense, but on the other side realized that a lot of that was, was debt and was kind of unaware of it. Yeah. And that, that $6,000, it doesn't seem like much. No, it doesn't. Okay. So you, you know, you went through these, was it four years of school for you or not? Yep. That's right. Okay. Same for me. Uh, and you know, it's funny cause the 6,000, $7,000, it seems like, Oh, that'll be easy to pay off. I'm going to make $45,000 a year when I graduate. But then uh, that adds up times four or possibly more. Yeah. And I, it, it really added up. And I also, I think I didn't really have any concept of what um, a livable wage was after college or how much cost of living was because, you know, I lived in a dorm and I lived off of a meal plan and um, I really wasn't paying attention to really what it costs to survive. So when I did end up getting a, you know, 40 something thousand dollar a year job, I felt like I was going to pay off my debt in maybe a year and a half with that kind of salary. So uh, I I also, I think on the other side, really overestimated my ability to to pay back loans. Yeah. And so where was your first job after college? Was it in D.C. or somewhere else? Um, So my first job, um, right when I graduated, actually, um, I had really impeccable timing. I graduated in 2009, uh, you know, eight months after the giant market crash. (laughs) So that was really good for job searching. So I was still in Boston and I was pretty determined not to move back to the West Coast just because I, um, you know, didn't really want to move back home. But at the same time, all I had was a minimum wage internship. Um, 
in Boston. So I was trying to live on minimum wage in the middle of the city um, and and did that for a few months while I really just hustled to find work anywhere. Um, and it, that was, I think, probably some of the more formative months of my life of, of really living off of hardly anything and um, trying to fix my own finances. And then at the same time, I had this internship where I got to teach financial education classes to refugees at a refugee center. Uh, so I would be teaching kind of, you know, what are the basics of credit and, and how does the bank system work in the U.S.? I'd be teaching that by day and then going home and being like, what is wrong with my money situation <laughs> right now? Um, so it was an interesting spot to be in. It really got me into the financial education, kind of personal finance space for my own sake. Uh, and then um, luckily for me, I just, you know, I made it my second job to find a new job. And, and, and at that time, D.C. was really one of the few places that um, seemed relatively untouched by the um, recession. So I ended up getting a job down there, similar kind of line in, in terms of providing financial education to families and designing programs that got set up around the country. Interesting. So let's see here, $34,000, some of that had to be unsubsidized, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I definitely had some subsidized loans, um, but a good portion of that was unsubsidized for sure. And if you were working minimum wage for the first, you said six months, yeah, were you able was, to defer that or yeah, I was, I was lucky because, um, my, uh, I ended up getting my quote unquote real job, um, right when my loans were coming due. So my, um, grace period wasn't quite up yet. I'm not quite sure what I would have done <laughs> if it hadn't been. So I was able to start paying them back. But but I think like what I mentioned earlier, um, I you know it was a forty seven thousand dollar a year job in the middle of the third most expensive city in the country. Yeah. Um, so when my loans did start coming due, all thirty thousand dollars of them at the time, uh, that was a big chunk of change when you have you know, the second highest payment that you're making each month is to, you know, it's second only to rent. Um, so it was, it was a bit of a shock. And again, too, just, I felt a little, um, kind of betrayed by, by the lack of education I got on what I was getting myself into, but I was pretty determined quickly to, to get rid of these as fast as possible. Yeah. So, and you did it in under four years, which is, Awesome. So what was your, your process and sort of your uh, prioritization for getting rid of this debt? Yeah. So um, I think for the first year, um, again, getting used to my first adult paycheck, um, it was really important to me, it, given where I had been in Boston, which was living, you know, scraping by. Um, I really didn't want to subject myself to any sort of lifestyle inflation, even though I wasn't really raking in tons of dough, but um, I was really frugal and intentional with my money. And um, I really just decided what my top three financial priorities were in life. And, and I would spend on those things and, and really just scrape, you know, everything else. Um, so for me, I paying off my debt was a huge priority. Um, traveling back to the West Coast and visiting family twice a year, that was a priority. And then buying healthy food. Those were my kind of three priorities and everything else I just didn't spend any money on. So I hardly went out to eat. Um, you know, I'd go out to bars with friends and I would be the girl with soda water and lime. <laughs> um, 
so a drink in my hand, but not spending money on anything. Um, the, the library I used so much just to, for DVDs and any sort of books I wanted to read. So, um, setting of uh, setting my debt as a priority, I think was one of the biggest, um, first steps for me. And, and then the second was negotiation. Um, and, I think it's one of the more overlooked things, especially for someone who's just getting a job for the first time, which is negotiating your starting salary and um, asking for raises consistently. So over the course of two years, while I was paying off those student loans, I ended up negotiating up $13,000, Wow! which was a huge win. Uh, you know, I spent 10 hours rehearsing and writing up letters uh, and researching things to make sure that my argument was pretty solid. But in 10 hours can sound really excessive for one meeting with your boss. But when you think about it, those 10 hours for me on different occasions um, added up to thousands and thousands of dollars. So the ROI on that was pretty amazing. So I just made sure that I had a conversation every year with my current boss about what my salary looked like, what my responsibilities looked like, continuing throughout the year to say, you know, what can I do to step up my game so that um, promotions and salary increases could could happen in the future and so that she knew it was on my radar. And then when I took a, a my next job, um, my second job out of college, I made sure to be really aggressive with the starting salary and those negotiations. Um, and that was probably one of my, my bigger wins that really, really helped accelerate the, um, the loan payoff process. That's really interesting. And it's kind of contrary to a lot of the advice that you get, which is basically all how to be frugal, mm -hmm. how to reduce your expenses. And for you, I guess the biggest win was really increasing your income. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the same time, like I said, I didn't want that to contribute to lifestyle and for inflation. So I was, I still was, was really frugal on the back end, but it can only get you so far. And when you're cutting back, you know, the, the, the classic example of lattes that you spend money on every month, um, you know, you could save 30 bucks a month and that's nothing to, to, you know, I think be belittle, but, um, when you're talking, you know, 5000 or 10000 or $13,000 extra, in my case, a year, um, and you've got lots of student loans, that's a huge, uh, easy way. Um, it, it's, not, it's not easy to negotiate, but it's a, it's a huge way to, I think, make a lot of progress really quickly on, on your debt. Right. So when you got this $13,000 raise, did you consciously try to stay exactly where you were in terms of spending? Yeah. So, um, so that those, it was kind of split in half. So I got one, uh, a part of that money as a, as a raise in my current job. And then I took, when I took a second job, um, my second job out of college that I, I negotiated my salary up from there. So kind of mm. cumulatively, I climbed the ladder kind of $13,000 up, uh, from where I was if I hadn't asked for any money. But, um, yeah, I, I made a really conscious effort to, keep my expenses where they were. Um, I actually ended up moving to a, um, to an apartment that was cheaper in rent. Um, that's also a, a huge, obviously impact on your budget each month. Um, but I, I made sure that I, if I had any sort of acceleration of my money, um, on the front end, I was putting it towards my loans on the back end. And so I really started ramping up my monthly payments. Um, and then at the same time, putting money away and saving it 
um, on the side wherever I could. That's the way to do it. Yeah. It's the same thing I did. I just all my money towards my loans. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and two, you know, for me, I started doing some work on the side that really helped. And hmm. the, the side work, uh, you know, I did that about a year and a half, two years um, before I um, ended up starting my own business. And obviously it gave me great experience to, to venture out on my own, but that just all felt like extra money that, and my, and whenever I got a tax refund, um, just treating, treating extra money, just, just, uh, you know, really with a lot of intention and and putting it towards my debt since I knew it was one of my priorities. It's like pretend that money never even touched your hands. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I made, um, I even made rules for myself. I have a, I had a pie chart, um, that if any extra money came away, whether it was, you know, $10 from my uncle for my birthday, or if it was like a $1,500 tax refund, I had to do 50% of that towards debt, 25% towards a long-term savings goal. And then the other 25% I could spend on, um, whatever I wanted. Cause I knew I, you know, you have to be a little human. I think yeah. when a lot of money comes your way, give yourself a little <laughs> bit of, of leniency. So, but I just, I just really stuck to that rule. Cause I knew, um, yeah, I knew I wanted to get rid of this as soon as possible and just, I think, free up a lot of other options for my money in my life. I think it's so much better to build a system for things. It's almost like an algorithm that you can just follow. Yeah, absolutely. And I think then it, uh, it accounts for, um, human emotions and human error. Uh, so that when you do have those days where you're, you know, you, you need to, to have some retail therapy, you've got a system that can, I think, pull you into check and you can recognize, well, maybe this isn't aligned with my financial priorities in the short term or the long term. Yeah. So, uh, did you have multiple loans? I'm guessing. Yeah. So I had, um, that $30,000 was about, um, half private and half federal. So Mm. it was a single private loan. And then the rest was split between subsidized and unsubsidized, uh, federal loans. Okay. And did you do any sort of prioritization in order to like reduce interest? Um, so for me, I, um, I really wanted to, to do the debt snowball method, um, Mm. which I'm sure you talk about, which is, uh, you know, I needed the emotional wins, I think on paying off my loans more than I needed the, the strict kind of mathematical method that would save me the most interest. So, um, for me, I, I just wanted to get rid of, of balances. Um, so seeing, I think, you know, I think I probably had about six federal loans and just seeing all of them stacked together on a kind of single statement was really overwhelming. So I just wanted Mm -hmm. to knock down the lowest balances first. Um, and my interest rates weren't really, extremely variable. So my federal loans were, most of them were at about 6.8%. And then my private loan was around four. Um, and that didn't, and it was a variable rate, but luckily for me, it didn't really fluctuate. So, um, so yeah, interest rate rate wise, there wasn't that big of a difference, but for me, I needed to get some, um, emotional momentum behind feeling like I could actually tackle all of this debt. And so I decided to go with the lowest balances first. Okay. It's interesting that your public loans were actually higher interest rates than your private one. I think yeah. most people listening to this are probably in the opposite situation because yeah. there's the whole, uh, the act that put student loans at what, 3.8 for a while. Right. Yeah. So that's, um, which is a great, a great place to be at. Um, so, uh, you know, I felt pretty lucky that I didn't have a ridiculous, 
um, interest rate on my private loans. And then at the same time, a lot of my loans were subsidized, but yeah, um, you know, a doubled interest rate, 6.8% that can, that would, uh, that would have definitely bit me in the butt if I had kept those loans on a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. Though I, I guess it's, uh, I guess it was nice to have the lower interest rate on the unprotected loan because it, and you know, in case something had happened, the public ones have protections on them, I suppose. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and it was interesting too. just be, as I, you know, uh, continued to work and build my career and do stuff on the side. Um, you know, I really didn't think about becoming unemployed. I think in retrospect, I, uh, you know, I would tell people who are listening and, and anyone else who's paying back loans to pay off the private ones first, just because you have less repayment options usually. Um, and it wasn't really top of mind because I think in your early twenties out of college, you feel pretty invincible, even, <laughs> even right. if you're just learning how to do your job. But, um, but yeah, I think for me, it was, my decision was really based on, on kind of the early emotional wins I could get. Yeah, that it's actually pretty interesting to me because I've been listening to listen money matters and that's how I learned about the stack method and like how it's mathematically the best. And then recently Matt actually went and read Dave Ramsey's book, which is, it's kind of funny cause they, um, you know, were kind of like the anti Dave Ramsey for a while based on everything they right. heard. And so I just kind of went along with that cause I didn't really know a whole lot about Dave myself. And then he's like, you know, the book's not that bad. Like it's pretty good. And I can see the logic behind emotional, trying to get that emotional win. And personally, mm -hmm. I think I agree. Like if you know that you need that emotional, uh, boost to pay off your debt. And if that's going to end up making you pay off more faster, then go for it because the mathematical way only has a benefit if you follow it strictly. Absolutely. And debt is just one of the most highly emotional personal finance topics out there. I mean, for me, there was so many different emotions tied to my debt, which was like anger and bitterness of, you know, towards my uh, alma mater for not educating me about what was happening. Um, and then just, you know, I think despair and looking at this huge number and wondering how the heck I was going to ever pay it off. And so, and, and for a lot of people too, just fear. And, and if you're getting like paper statements or even electronic statements, like not wanting to open that email or that letter and just, you know, putting your head in the sand because you just don't want to face it. Um, it's a, it's a really emotionally loaded topic. So anything that you can do to give yourself positive momentum to feel like you can actually make progress against it is really important. And, and actually that's part of the reason why I started drawing comics on my, um, personal finance website, which was money, especially debt can be emotional. It can be scary. It can be boring. Um, so if somebody can be a little more engaged and entertained, or at least think of it, something, think of it differently and feel a little inspired behind it. Um, I feel like I've hopefully done my job. Yeah, and I think you've done a fantastic job so far. <laughs> Thank you. So speaking of that, what got you started with uh, building a blog? Um, so for me, I, you know, again, I had, um, when I graduated from college, I ended up moving to D.C. Um, and, and working in the financial education space. So I was designing uh, programs around the country to help low-income families save money and mostly for college. So I, I really, it was really nice to have 
of my personal story and mission in life aligned with, with my career at the time. I felt really lucky. Um, and then at the same time, I just, I had, I, I was seeing my friends struggle, um, not only with student loans, but just to figure out money when you graduate from college and, and not really having any guidance or instructionals along the way. So I, um, you know, I had read a, a lot of personal finance blogs. Get Rich Slowly was my favorite and first blog that helped me figure out kind of smart savings and spending habits when I was only making a minimum wage. And so I wanted to start um, writing and I think helping others in my situation, either to avoid loans in the first place or to figure out how they were um, going to handle them now that they'd graduated from college. So that's that's how the Empowered Dollar was born. So it was kind of a debt-focused blog for the most part at first. Oh yeah, absolutely. Since that was really my um, kind of main focus, it was a it was a it was a nice place for my soapbox to just to say, you know, teenagers don't get in the situation that I was in, and and a good place I think too to share my story. So a lot of it was about my journey out of debt, um, and it was a great place for accountability for me, where I could declare online. I'm going to pay back $10,000 this year and realize that, you know, hundreds or, or even thousands of people were looking at that and I had to kind of hold myself to it. So it was, it was personally, <laughs> you know, it was a great tool to keep me on track with the, the financial goals that I had. Oh yeah, I totally agree. I have a list on my site where I put every month how much debt I had paid off until it was totally gone. So <laughs> that was just an, an insanely good motivator. And I guess you figured out the same thing as well. Yeah, absolutely. So start a website and put your debt goal on it. <laughs> right. Or if you don't have a website, maybe post it to Facebook. I mean, and, and that too is, again, money is such an emotional mm-hmm. um, topic and also a really taboo one in, in some senses. So um, I've just been really conscious to be the, the place for my friends and, and now my readers to, to say like, Hey, this is, let's, let's talk about the things that we don't normally talk about, which is, you know, struggling to pay our monthly payment for our student loans, or let's talk about how much money we make and how we can make more. Um, which is not something that's kind of, uh, that's kind of taboo to talk about, I think around like happy hour with friends, but, um, that's another reason I think why I love writing for the blog and why I started it, which was let's get some of these issues out in the open so we can start sharing information and we can all be better off for it. Yeah. And even if someone doesn't want to be public about it, I think it's good to have a constant reminder or just have, have sources of in- information that are keeping your mind focused on paying off that debt. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's tools like um, like Ready for Zero, if you've heard of that one. Right, yeah. That one's a pretty good one. I, that probably didn't exist. Um, probably not even when... I don't know. It's not, it hasn't been around for very long, has it? No, I think they, um, they started uh, getting bigger um, after I'd paid off my debt. But I love um, talking to and working with their team just in terms of um, sharing my debt story kind of on the other side of having paid back student loans. So, um, But I know they're a really great product. I know a couple people that use them. Yeah. And I love how it, it shows your progress. And for me, it's like that, that is a tool that lets you get the emotional wins. Even if you're trying to do like the stack method, the most, most mathematically, uh, sound way of paying it off. It shows you progress on your total, which is a win in my book. Yeah, absolutely. As long as you can have some way of measuring progress, I think, 
visually is really important. Um, you know, I got to a point where I was really discouraged about the progress I made. I still had a lot to pay off. Um, and I started making paper chain rings, you know, the, the kind that like you, you decorate with for Christmas and you take oh, yeah. off the rings when, it, when the days pass. And I would do that for, I think I had them in either like $2,000 or $5,000 increments. Um, just hanging up in my room because I needed some sort of like visual, fun, colorful motivator and just rip a chain to shreds whenever I paid off a certain <laughs> amount. So whatever works, you know, but especially those visual motivators where you can look backwards in time and say, oh, wow, I forgot I was all the way back there. So I feel like I can keep going. That's a really cool way of doing it. I've never thought about that. Have you um, written about yeah, that? I, I love doing random crafty things. Um, obviously, I do like cartoons on my personal finance blog. So, so whatever I can do visually with my money is really helpful for me. Um, I still save money in jars where I can see it. I'm looking right now at a, a glass <laughs> jar next to me that says MacBook Air on it, and I've got a whole bunch of 20s wadded up in it. Because, oh, really? Yeah, I need to. I I want a MacBook Air, and I want to save up for it. Um, and I need that kind of visual reminder that extra money is going to go in this literal savings jar. So I love automation. I automate all my finances, but sometimes you just need something like tactile and, and visually in front of you. Mm -hmm. I, I've even tried, uh, using cash only for certain periods in my life and all my bills are automated, uh, savings automated, but for actual day-to-day -day spending, I found that cash makes you think harder about what you're spending. Yeah, because you're touching it's... it and you're you're letting go of it. And then I think that's that's the painful <laughs> moment where you realize, I don't want to let go of so much of this. I like this. Yeah, and I can look at my wallet and be like, all right, looks like there's $17 in there. And yeah. my credit card is always the credit card. Exactly. It never exactly. looks any different. <laughs> yep. And Mint takes too long to update, so I can't <laughs> really right. look at it in the grocery store. That's right. I don't know about your grocery stores, but ours are all dead zones as well. So. Oh, no, that's terrible. It is terrible because I'll, I'll be like, ooh, I wonder if I can make something with uh, this random food item I found. Well, can't look up a recipe. <laughs> so I just <laughs> so have to buy it on a whim. Her. Yeah. <laughs> or hopefully remember to look recipes up before I leave. I'm getting better at it, but still run into situations like that. That's too funny. So I am curious to know how you went about negotiating for a higher salary. Because as you said, the the making more money topic is not as uh, frequently tackled in the personal finance community. Because frugal, frugality is easier. It's right. easier to save than create more value. So how did you go about negotiating and, and making more money? Yeah, and so um, at, my, at my job at the time, so the first time I kind of negotiated my salary was... Um, you know, the first step is, is be, uh, be good at your job. Um, it seems really, uh, simple advice, but, but to, I think go a little, go above and beyond wherever you can so that you do have, get some, um, kind of, I, I think you, you earn the praise of, of your fellow employees and your boss. Um, for me though, when it came down to brass tacks and it was time to actually negotiate, there were two tools that I used, um, and absolutely love. One is um, Ramit Sethi of I Will Teach You To Be Rich. He mm. has a lot of wonderful YouTube videos that I would watch over and over and over again of kind of negotiation simulations. Um, so I watched his YouTube videos about negotiating uh, your salary at a current job. And then the other, um, I actually used a website called getraised.com 
Um, and I think it's about 20 bucks, but basically Mm -hmm. what it will do is you, um, you get to research similar jobs in your area with similar salaries. Um, they help you craft kind of your argument for why you deserve a raise. And then a kind of even a paragraph on, um, how you're looking for future opportunities. You want to grow with the company. So they, they really, they help you craft almost the perfect, uh, negotiation letter. And I ended up using that and as my practice tool, for what I wanted to say to my boss. Um, and then when I finally sat down in the conversation, um, kind of said it and said it out loud, what I had memorized about here's what, uh, you know, put similar positions are looking like, um, with, uh, you know, similar responsibilities. Um, and I would, you know, these are the kind of duties that I've done. These are the kind that I would look forward to having more of, and I want to grow in this company. Um, and the argument was good enough that she, she, agreed to kind of, uh, take it to HR and, and I got my, my salary bumped up at that point. So those are the two specific tools I used. And then, um, when it was time to leave that job for the next one and negotiate a starting salary, I, I used some of the same techniques. Um, and I definitely watched more of, uh, the YouTube videos on, I will teach you to be rich uh, to, to really like hone in on, on the argument I wanted to make for a a higher starting salary. That's interesting. So the the process of negotiating a salary increase requires a letter or is Uh, that like just in your thing? You know what? I didn't even use the letter. I, I had it printed out and ready to go. Um, and I know depends on how kind of bureaucratic your workplace is, but I used it, um, kind of the, the three paragraphs that this website helped me outline, I used it as, as my talking points for when I did sit down with my boss. Um, and I said, Hey, I've got a typed up letter if you need to pass it along to anyone. And she's like, Nope, no worries. Um, but the process I think of doing the research, going through the actual, um, you know, outlining my argument, um, and really make crafting it into a win-win, which is I've been doing a lot of hard work. I'm looking forward to keep you know, continuing to grow with this company. Um, but I also am pretty aware of what other people are getting paid in this, in this industry. Um, and I'd like to be compensated accordingly. So, uh, so, so those are some, you know, strategies and tactics. Um, and then you just really have to psych yourself up and you have to practice with people in person. Uh, it's really easy to sit there and read it, but when you sit down in front of a boss an authority figure and you have to ask for more money. Um, it's a really, I think difficult thing to do and it can be nerve wracking even just thinking about it. So, um, yeah, I did a lot of, I think work internally just to psych myself up to be like, yeah, I, I absolutely, um, I should get paid what I not just deserve, but what the industry shows and what my work ethic is showing. So, so that there's always a psychological piece of all this as well. So it's like, it's almost like, uh, preparing for a speech a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. A a speech that, um, you know, a speech though is, is definitely one way and a negotiation is, is compromise because you'll go into a conversation and, and, you know, your boss wants you to stay there and your boss wants you to be happy. Um, your boss also has a budget, but, Mm -hmm. um, if you're a good employer and you make the case and you make the right argument and, and you come in, you know, a little flexible. So if she says, you know, I can't, I can't give you that, uh, you know, I can't give you 4,000, but I can give you two. And you say, well, I, I could do, 
you know, 3000 and maybe two extra vacation days. Um, so it's definitely a two way conversation and you're both trying to work to a solution where you both can be happy. And I think if you keep that in the back of your mind, um, you'll be a lot more successful. Right. Uh, it's, it's almost the exact same as the mindset that I adopted when I interviewed for jobs as a student, which is instead of thinking of a boss or an interviewer as like someone to appease, like a, I don't know, like a king or something. Right. Just think of it as uh, two people trying to provide value for each other and seeing if uh, if you're going to be a good fit for each other. Absolutely. And just reminding yourself, like, you you wouldn't be, even in an interview or, or negotiation, you wouldn't be sitting across from the table from that person unless they needed you. And mm-hmm. there was something, some value you were providing. So, um, yeah, I love that analogy of not <laughs> treating your boss like a king or a queen. <laughs> Um, so one thing I've heard about, uh, getting promotions is that you should try to take on the responsibilities of the position you're seeking before you go for that position. Did you do anything like that? Yeah, I I think that's a great piece of advice. Um, you know, I made sure to have regular check-ins with my boss. I I had a great, great boss who was really you know, I think cognizant of nurturing my career. So we had regular check-ins, but, but if you don't, you know, ask for them and, and to just be, that could be a great point where you, you ask, you know, what is it, what is something I can work on, um, and improve. And I made sure to, to do, uh, you know, to improve on the things that I needed to work on. Like for me, it was writing. Um, and so I ended up taking a, you know, writing workshops to make my writing more, more, um, appropriate for that, that work style. Hmm. Um, but then also too, you know, talking forward, looking forward, um, really is a good conversation, not only so that you can start, uh, assuming the responsibilities of, of maybe the position above you, but also it's a good signal to your boss that you are invested and you're thinking longer term in this career. Um, because hardly anyone thinks long term about jobs these days. So, the more you can have conversations about, um, you know, hey, what can I take on? Because I'd love to continue to advance. Um, that actually might might kind of put your your boss's mind at ease in terms of how long you might be staying there and, and what kind of loyalty and interest you have in the company. Yeah, and that makes sense because if you're just doing 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 your responsibilities at a bare minimum, they don't know that you're trying to improve and trying to get better. Right. You just look like you're there for the money. Exactly. And on the other hand, if you're doing what you're doing, then you look like you're really trying to help the company out and that you care. And I, I think that's an important point to make because even if you think that you care about the company, you have to think about what your boss is seeing because that's the impression that they get. It's only what they see you do and the results that you that you bring to the table. Yeah, exactly. And I think and not being afraid to be really explicit about that and to say, um, I, you know, I really value my job here and I really am interested in more responsibility and I, I'm, I'm eyeing the next step. Um, I think it shows a lot of maturity at at any age for sure. Um, but also that interest that you have a vested interest in the company. Definitely. So I like how you said you took a writing workshop. So it's almost like even though you were graduated, uh, from college, you still sought out education that could make you a better employee. Absolutely. Yes. I think, um, what I loved after graduating from college was my, I'm a really voracious learner and I, I love anything that will improve skills that I already have skills that I want to learn or help me think differently. 
Um, but, but really after college, I took it upon myself to continue to give myself an education and the specifically the education that I wanted. So in areas that I was, was weaker in making sure that I took those kind of workshops. But again, um, I was still interested in, in different pieces of personal finance that I didn't get in my day job. So I kept reading, I kept doing research. Um, and that's really how I started working on the side too. So your education does not end after college. And in fact, I feel like it just begins because you get to choose and make exactly what you want out of it. Yeah. I almost feel like I've learned more after graduating, to be honest. (laughs) I I guess that also lends towards my bitterness about my student loans. (laughs) It was like, I I did a great job self-educating myself for free. Well, this is the way I've always looked at it. Uh, You may not have explicitly gotten like useful information out of your classes, but that was part of what brought you to the path where you are now. Exactly. Oh, I would not give it up for the world. Um, you know, I use the word formative, but it was so much more than that. Um, and, and specifically for me, I got into a career that's based on helping people pay back or avoid student loans. And I couldn't have done it without student loans myself. So (laughs) in that sense, I'm grateful for it. And that internship you did was, uh, in educating people, on personal finance that probably came from a connection you made in college. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, in college, I studied international relations. Um, So I started doing a lot of work in the kind of refugee immigration type space. Um, And so from there, got an internship at the Refugee Center, uh, helping them apply for jobs. And then from there, doing the financial education workshops for the refugees. And it it really was just a ladder effect. I had no idea where it was going to take me. So, um, so you know, we're the sum of our experiences for sure. Um, so I wouldn't trade any of it for the world. Exactly. I almost feel college as a, it's, it's analogous to a, a conference almost like FinCon. Like, I don't know how much FinCon costs. I'm assuming like three, $400 maybe. Um, I would gladly pay that. I paid probably a couple hundred bucks to go to podcast movement, but the sessions themselves were not the meat that I was going for. Like they were nice and mm-hmm. those are like the classes, but the most value came out of just the people I met and my experiences hanging out with them. Yeah, absolutely. So it's very similar. So you, you said you started doing side work um, in addition to your business. Now, was that the personal finance consultation business? Yeah. So when I was um, kind of when I was a full-time employee, I started, um, I, you know, I really wanted to do the things that were going to have a lot of impact. And I, I really just had a creative muscle that I wasn't flexing how I wanted to. So I, I actually started reaching out to startup companies that were doing interesting things in the, in the finance space, um, just to talk to them and see what was happening. I found one group in Singapore They're they're called play moolah. And I reached out to them and, and they're, they were designing games for six year olds to teach six year olds, personal finance, I thought this is so fun and their site looked really, you know, fun and cartoony. And I reached out to them and I said, Hey, I would love to help you guys out. I'll be, you know, I'll do some free work for you. If it just means, you know, getting my, my, um, feet wet a little in this industry. Um, so worked with them for a little bit remotely, just back and forth, helping them design, you know, what are the lessons that a six year old or seven year old needs to learn about money? Um, and then slowly started, doing some paid work for them. Um, and then at that point I started ramping up my own website. Um, and it was generating a little bit of money in terms of ad space using Google AdSense, but not too much. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and really the the rest of my money came from that side kind of consulting work and then also um, I started doing freelance writing for other personal finance blogs um, so that was kind of my my combination of you know I approached it at first as just experience but then I realized I was starting to earn extra money which was really helpful to pay off my student loans um, but you know again I wasn't I, I, I love to learn and I love to kind of flex my creative muscles in any way possible. So for, for me, mostly it was about how do I gain experience and test out different avenues in my life without leaving my job? Because I really don't know. And I also just, I, you know, I don't want to be bored. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic thing to do. Just find ways to, to make things and to learn new things, even uh, when, you're, when you're doing a, a full-time job. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, the last thing you want to do is, um, you know, be unhappy at your job and then try to find the absolute perfect next step and then wait and wait and wait for it Um, or to make the jump to a new job and realize you're still unhappy. So, uh, you know, the best way for me is the advice I give a lot of people is just experiment on your own and, and try things out outside of the workplace or, or even inside the workplace if you can and pitch ideas if there are other areas that you want to start focusing on at your job. But if not, um, you get to build your own career. You build it completely how you want. Um, and it doesn't really have to do with, you know, whatever your boss says. It could be anything else because you've got you've got other hours in the day and you have complete creativity to do whatever you want with them. Yeah. And that's absolutely great advice. I talked to a guy named Cal Newport. I'm not sure if you've heard of him, but uh, yeah. Oh, I love Cal Newport. Oh yeah. Yeah. I talked to him yesterday and uh, I'm a huge fan of his book. And uh, basically his, his big idea right now is that the passion hypothesis that there's just some unearthed passion waiting to be found is not really true. And a better way to go about work is just to look at things that are interesting and try being really good at them and learning new things. And that's exactly what you seem to do. Yeah. And and that's so true. And it's funny now that you bring that up. um, It reminds me of just like how I got to where I am today, which is drawing cartoons online. And it happens to be in personal finance. But for me growing up, um, you know, up until fifth grade, I wanted to be an animator and a cartoonist so badly. It was my life goal. I would sit in front of Looney Tunes and just copy, you know, sketching Bugs Bunny on my drawing pad. Um, and I slowly lost that over the years, but I, uh, you know, in, in college, I started getting passionate about, you know, immigration and refugees. I, it wasn't my calling, but it was seemed really interesting to me and I was good at pieces of it. Um, and again, that translated to personal finance and financial education classes for refugees. And then that translated into using my story about, um, student loans to a new job in DC where I helped people save for college. And I, again, it kept laddering up and up, um, to the point where I was able to quit my job and do financial education consulting. So helping other companies develop these programs. And, you know, it's only in the last couple months that my entire kind of life has come full circle again. And I'm now <laughs> doing cartoons, which is like, if I had to name a passion, it was that, but, um, the application and the pursuit of that passion, I know for a fact, I, given my personality, how much I love to learn, um, everything like that, I would have been really unhappy as an animator. Mm. Um, but now I've found something that's entrepreneurial that really gets me excited. Um, 
you know, t- math and money is, is always been something I've been pretty good at. And then now applying something that I'm pretty passionate about on top of it. So I think it takes a lot of different forms and it takes a lot of experimentation to find a combination of what people will pay you for, what you're good at and what you're passionate about. Um, and it can show up in the most weird ways, like personal finance cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> That's those three things form the sort of, uh, I guess I call it the personal branding diagram where you want to find that middle spot of those three things, your interest, your things you're good at and things that people will pay you for. And it's so cool when you can bring in something that you did a long time ago and uh, that was like an interest long time ago. Yeah. And, and so exactly, I feel really lucky to be here. And I also realize it took me four years of experimentation and my own, my own experimentation to find this intersection. Um, because like I said, right when I graduated from college, I was teaching personal finance classes to refugees. And that was not my life passion, but it was interesting and I was good at it. Um, and I built upon it. So again, like experimenting and trying things that are new and, and creating your career and taking charge of it, um, even outside of normal work hours is really important to getting to that kind of magical intersection. Yeah. And when you're there and you look back, you realize that those, those hours put in and something that you really didn't feel was your calling those were the foundation absolutely like you had to go through that to get to where you are now so i I love that story and i any any people that have that kind of a story i want to get it out there because um students need to realize that like you're going to go through hard stuff you're going to go through stuff you don't like but as long as you keep trying to learn more and be better it probably is going to form the basis for something down the line that you're really going to like Absolutely. And and nobody's going to give you permission to do it. No one's going to say, oh, well, you know, what are you working on on the side? Uh, you know, that's not really a conversation <laughs> that people bring up, especially right when you graduate. It's about well, what is your job? What's your career path? Um, you know, give me the 30 year outline. So mm-hmm. um, you just have to give yourself permission to experiment and try new things um, and find the intersections of what you're good at and what you love. Yep. That's that's why I like WDS so much, because right when I got there, the first person I met asked me not what do you do, but he asked me, like, what are you passionate about right now? Like, what's got your your interest up right now? Yeah, absolutely. Like, that's a good question. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's a much better question than uh, where do you work? <laughs> and, a, and a lot of people, you know, I, I remember um, early on in my career, I didn't know what I was passionate about. I didn't. No, again, it wasn't, it wasn't like, Oh, I wish I could be an artist, but I, I, I don't know how to do it. I, you know, I was really at a moment in my life where I had no idea what my career was going to look like. Um, you know, I kept doing informational interviews with professionals to, to see if they had interesting jobs and none of them resonated with me. And I was like, well, how do I figure out what job to apply to next if I don't even know what they're like and and if I would be any good at them or if I would like them and so for me it was kind of at that moment where I realized I need to I need to start doing stuff on the side um Hmm. and exercising and testing different passions and different vehicles for it otherwise I just you'll I'll never know yeah it's interesting that you say you did informational interviews do you feel like doing those helped you out in any way for me, um, informational interviews were really important because um, 
I think I had some pie-in-the-sky ideas of what my ideal job would look like. Uh, so I had studied international relations, um, and I was doing uh, economic development work in the U.S., you know, this these financial education programs. Um, but I wanted to get back to the refugee space, and I wanted to work for, you know, USAID or um, these international organizations that, that solved giant issues about poverty across the world. Um, and so I did a bunch of informational interviews with people who were pretty high up and who'd made careers out of this. And their day-to-day job sounded terrible. And it was <laughs> it was just not something I was interested in. It was about data and research and accountability that, you know, in bureaucracy in a way that I did not want to be parts of these kind of massive systems. Um, and so I, for me, informational interviews helped me realize that the only information I could really count on would be self-experimentation and, and my own education because um, I, I just I couldn't find the magic job for me. And I did so many of them and they all just didn't sound very appealing. Um, it just sounded like the next step on the ladder, but I didn't even want to be on this ladder. So so for me, it was really important, I think, to, to talk to a bunch of people just to realize what I didn't want. Um, and And I know for other people, who are really passionate about the career they are in, informational interviews are a great way to learn more about what the job looks like, but also um, also to start building relationships with professionals who are high up, who can let you know when new postings are available or, or where they think you might be a good fit in a new company. So that, that I would absolutely encourage doing those, even if you're not looking for a new job. Um, you're, you're kind of always looking for a new job, if that makes sense. Yeah. That's actually where my internship kind of came from. Oh, wow. I, it was like I got a mentor from this conference, and it was basically like informational interviews style thing. Uh, we had a lot of conversations, and then I got hired pretty easily. And I'm, I'm glad I did because, like you, I figured out that it wasn't the job for me. Um, for me, it was it was IT work, and it was going through a three-month internship to figure out that I didn't like it. But I did go through that sort of informational interview stage to get there. And I'm glad I did because it, like you, it really kind of motivated me to learn things in my own time and right. be creative. Yep, absolutely. Awesome. Well, this has been a great conversation. And so for certain interviews, I always want to ask people what their favorite books are in the areas that we're talking about. So do you have any book recommendations that really uh, resonated with you or that you think are good for students to check out? Yeah. So um, for me, I would say... Uh, Ramit Sethi's I Will Teach You to Be Rich book um, was the, the first one of the first personal finance books that I read that really got me thinking about the right systems for my money and to, to think about negotiating. So there's even some negotiation tactics in there for your cable bill or your cell phone bill. Um, so that book really helped me um, think think differently about, about what I was doing. Um, and then you know, what's coming to me right now is, is a book recommendation is Calvin and Hobbes is a great <laughs> book series. Uh, I have the whole so series. Good. For me, it's super inspirational because I love cartoons, but it's also just, um, it's, you know, it's life philosophy done in a really hilarious way with a stuffed talking tiger and comics. So mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> That's a perfect recommendation for you. I love Calvin and Hobbes. Probably read all of it. I think my dad had them all. So 
Yep. I will second that. Does Ramit's book have the negotiation like scripts in them in, in it or not? I think he might have a few of the negotiation scripts in his actual book. Um, mm. But again, if he doesn't, some of the most helpful things for me were watching his YouTube videos where he actually sits down and does um, mock negotiations with another person. And again, it's easy to read about these things and it's one thing to, to actually practice them or watch them happen. So, um, even if the books don't have them, I would still highly recommend checking out the videos. Cool. Well, I'll make sure to link to both of those in the show notes. Uh, I've actually linked to his YouTube videos before because he has one on doing informational interviewing and it's Mm -hmm. awesome. So I'll be sure to keep watching. So do you have anything cool coming up on the horizon? Oh, for me, um, I am, I'm really ramping up, uh, my cartoons this year that have nothing to do with money. So I, I want to put those out on the market, um, motivational, funny cartoons that I just, I like to do for fun that people have always asked me for prints for. Um, so that store I think is going to be launching soon, which will be exciting. And then I'm working on a children's book for adults. Uh, so Mm -hmm. kind of the, the, cartoon version that's slightly motivational but i think a little pithy and a little edgy um that's kind of my big project for the next year cool well i'll make sure to send listeners over to your site so they can see both of those awesome thank you yeah well thanks for coming on the show this has been an awesome conversation yeah thanks for having me All right, so I hope you enjoyed that interview with Stephanie and got something useful out of it. Once again, if you have questions about anything you learned in this interview or about anything else related to the college experience, send those questions over to thomas at collegeinfogeek.com or you can hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Tom Frankly over there and there's also a College Info Geek Facebook page. So wherever you want to ask questions, I'm pretty diligent about collecting them from wherever they come from and getting them logged in my spreadsheet and then answering them when I have the chance to do it. So uh, get those questions in. And also, if you're looking for resources and tools, both that I use in my work and that you can use to be a more awesome student, then the College Info Geek resources page is for you. And you can find that at collegeinfogeek.com slash resources. It's also linked up in the show notes, which once again at cigpodcast.com, find that episode 38 link and you'll get the show notes with anything we mentioned in this episode. So that's it for this episode. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, you'll get next Monday's uh, podcast right when it comes out. And also it helps bump the show up the charts in iTunes. So your support really helps out. And if you really want to show your support and you're liking this show a lot, then leave a review and rating on iTunes. I love getting reviews. I love getting feedback. It lets me know how I can improve and uh, what to do right on the show and what to scrap. And also also helps bring those rankings up. So if you want to help out the show, you can do that. That's it uh, for this week. Stay tuned for next week's episode that comes out Monday at 6 a.m. Central. And until then, stay cute. Thanks for listening to the College Info Geek Podcast. Grow your brain even more at www.collegeinfogeek.com.